Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Adventure Fist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 264, and today's guest is Joel Montaniel, CEO and co-founder of Seven Rooms. Typically, you don't hear many venture capital-backed companies get mentioned during daytime talk shows. But did you know that Seven Rooms is one of Drew Barrymore's favorite companies? At least that is what she said during her show. She highlighted the company's fresh start policy, which gives new hires their first two weeks of employment as paid time off. It's a chance to recharge their batteries before getting going at the company. In addition, Seven Rooms has a 7R&R program, which requires employees who have been with the company up to five years to take five consecutive days off twice a year, and employees with a longer tenure must double that. Joe and I talk in detail about these benefits and why they are so meaningful and important for the company's people-first culture. Seven Rooms is a guest experience and retention platform that helps hospitality operators create exceptional experiences that drive revenue and repeat business. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Joel's professional background and what he learned as the chief of staff at LivePerson, the founding story of Seven Rooms and all the details on the platform, plus the impact it has for its customers, what it was like running a company, focus on the hospitality industry during the height of the pandemic, and how some key decisions made the company stronger in the long run, the market opportunity and areas for disruption within the hospitality industry, advice on building a global company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, this week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 a month. That's free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Joel. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you're a co-founder and CEO of Seven Rooms, which is an amazing company that we're going to talk about. But um, before we get into that, uh, there's part of Seven Rooms in terms of your what you consider people-first culture. And I think lots of companies desire a people-first culture, but there's some companies that actually fall through on that. And one of the ways to actually you know, build credibility that you really are is a couple of unique items that Seven Rooms has this thing called a Fresh Start Program and Seven R&R, which I obviously want you to share the details on what those are, but I need to tell a quick story before we do that. So this Fresh Start Program was highlighted on the Drew Barrymore Show, which I can now say I'm meeting somebody who their company is one of Drew Barrymore's favorite companies now. And she said that on her show, which just growing up and watching E.T. as a child, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, Barrett, you know, we it, that one really came out of nowhere. Uh, it was organic. We're not quite, frankly, not sure how her team found it. And uh, when it started making the rounds around the company, we, of course, shared it with our friends and family. And I think for a lot of our friends and family who didn't really know what we did, the fact that Drew Barrymore said the name of the company was all that mattered. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe awesome. that was the most validation we've gotten in a long time. And you know, I'm a big Drew Barrymore fan too. So it was really cool to see her uh, really celebrate the program. So let's talk about the program. So, so what are these unique offerings that you, you have at Seven Rooms? Yeah, sure. So the Fresh Start program is this idea that 
uh, the first two weeks of your employment with Seven Rooms are fully paid for, and we don't expect you to work. So for instance, if your start date is July 1st, we pay you starting July 1st, but you're not expected to come in for work or virtually come in for work until July 15th. Wow. And the genesis of it was this realization that most people don't take time off in between jobs, especially people who are really talented. What you find is their current job wants them to work as long as possible because they want them to tie up loose ends. They had a huge impact on the business and their new job wants them to start as early as possible because they're really excited to get this new talented person on board. And so that can lead to, of course, a lot of burnout. Uh, and we found there are so many people time and time again, where they not only not taken time off between their last job and this one, but the past four ones, they had not taken any time off. So over the span of 10 years, they were just working back to back uh, company to company. And so we wanted to create some space and some room to really invest in new people so that they could come fully recharged and with their best self uh, into seven rooms. Which is so smart. Cause if you leave work at company A on Friday and then start a company B on Monday, you're like, what, who, what, what, what do I, what am I doing now? Like, <laughs> It's just that quick switch of the Jersey where you're like, okay. Uh, so you're not really in the right mindset. And I do agree. Like there was one period of time where I left the company before I started one that I took a month off. Now we're not talking about having a month off, but I do cherish that time so greatly where I just was allowed to just decompress and then, you know, embark on that new adventure. So two weeks is amazing. Absolutely. And the idea that we could pay you for it too, because a lot of times the other reason why people need to go from one job to the other job, especially when you're, you know, sometimes earlier in your career is, you know, you need the the, the money uh, to continue to support your, your life, your rent, your whatever it is. And so we wanted to create some space where you didn't have to worry about money. You didn't have to worry about the new set of responsibilities, all the things you had to learn. And you could actually take some time off for yourself to do whatever it is that you cared about without having to have any of the new worries that might happen as you transition. Now, once you are fully ingrained into the culture at Seven Rooms, you have Seven R&R, which is an extension of that. So what is Seven R&R? Yeah. So is this other idea, we've always had a limited vacation policy. And I think everyone at this point has read all the stats. I think on the surface, it sounds good, but I think everyone knows what the game is there, uh, which is essentially uh, the stat that most people actually end up taking off less vacation time when it's unlimited. And it actually benefits the company more than it benefits the employee in that case. And so we wanted to take a moment to recognize the fact that even with unlimited vacation, our people, our stats, uh, were showing us that people are not taking time off the way that we wanted them to take time off. So we did two things. One is we have a mandatory one day off a month policy where you have to take a recharge day no matter what. And then the other thing we did is we instituted where you have to take a block of time off every six months. Uh, so we are basically... Uh, in this case, forcing you uh, to take time off. You don't get a choice, actually. You have to do it. It's one of the few times where, as a company policy, we force you to do something. Uh, and so it you still have a limited vacation. You have now a month every day, and then you have a block of time every six months where you have to take it off. Wow, that that, that does a lot, say a lot about seven rooms and what you guys believe in and that people-first culture. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? 
Yeah, I, I grew up in Dallas and uh, a suburb north of Dallas, and it's been pretty amazing to see the explosion of uh, all of the, the Dallas area, Austin area, of course, everyone's reading the news where all the tech companies are moving from different parts, in particular, California. Uh, so very, you know, easygoing childhood. I was a middle child. I have two sisters. So uh, middle child, you know, kind of typical middle child where I can kind of go with the flow. I don't need the thing to be about me. Uh, so I spent my time uh, there through high school and then came up to uh, uh, study at Georgetown in D.C. and then eventually ended up in uh, New York right after school. Yeah. So how'd you get your career started? So you, I mean, cause you studied English and biology at Georgetown. Like how did you end up in investment banking? So my family is filled with doctors and uh, that was the, the path, if you will. I was pre-med in college. Uh, I did, I remember now that it's summertime, I did organic chemistry even during the summertime because I had to take enough classes and pre-med, but also do the, the English side of things for the English major. And, uh, I had no idea about investment banking or finance until I uh, lived with someone uh, who told me about it for the first time. Because I think in growing up in the Northeast, it's one thing versus when you grow up in Texas, it's a different type of industry, et cetera. And uh, it was my first exposure. So I had a summer internship at Credit Suisse before my senior year. And it was pretty exhilarating, uh, lots of good, lots of bad. Uh, but what I found was I really enjoyed the work, even though there was a lot of it. And when I came back to school and when I was doing the pre-med work, I actually really hated it. And it was a it was a one of the first realizations in my life where it was you could spend a lot of time on something and not be so good at it, or you could spend a little time on something and maybe be naturally better at it. And I found that that dynamic with business and with medicine where I was working really, really hard on the pre-med classes and doing okay. And I was putting in 1% of the effort on the business side and doing much better. And so uh, it kind of led me to this idea of, I'm not so sure I'm passionate about being a doctor. Uh, why don't I wait on that? Let me go pursue uh, business, see what happens. And at a minimum, at least, I wouldn't be $100,000 in debt after med school and decide that I didn't like it. That was my pitch to my parents. So I uh, ended up getting a full-time offer and ended up going into finance as opposed to medicine out of school. So what did that experience in investment banking teach you? I learned, looking back, I learned a few things. Uh, the first thing is uh, how many hours it's possible for a human being to work in a single week. <laughs> uh, we were which, which, what was the, the record number of hours that you logged? <laughs> Maybe 120. Mm -hmm. And uh, consistently, it was closer to 100 while we were there at 9 until call it 3 or 4 a.m. And then we worked 10 to 12 hours every single weekend day. So it was a lot of work. Uh, it was so that's the first thing is just how much you can physically work. Uh, the second one was what happens when you have really, really smart individuals working together on something. Uh, I was fortunate to be surrounded by just brilliant, brilliant people. Uh, you know, uh, everything from you know Rhodes Scholars, perfect SAT scores, perfect this, perfect that, 4.0, top of their class, all the best quote unquote schools in the country. So it was interesting just to, to be surrounded by this this field of just 
I guess, people that quote unquote excelled. And it wasn't just that, it was also top athletes that were top scholars. It was just a, a interesting combination of people. And then the last thing I learned is uh, just because you have those pieces, uh, it was a really bad culture uh, where a lot of things that were deemed as valuable uh, in that culture, looking back now, uh, I think uh, were probably uh, toxic, if you will. And so uh, seeing this level of talent and seeing how much how hard people are willing to work, but combining that with a in some cases, toxic culture. Uh, those are some of the kind of key takeaways I had coming out of it. So uh, you ended up in in the technology industry. So how did that happen? And I thought it was also interesting because you ended up as a chief of staff at Live Person, which that's a common title that I see now, but it wasn't common when you were doing the role. So how did, how did that come to fruition? Yeah, so there are a couple of seminal moments for me when I was in finance that uh, really are, are crystal clear, even looking back now. So uh, the first seminal moment was we ended up working on the uh, the Lehman Brothers real estate portfolio the weekend before they declared bankruptcy. And our job was to actually value the portfolio. And uh, we spent the entire weekend looking at their numbers. The whole team was in. Uh, this was a little bit after... Uh, um, you know, Bear Stearns was saved uh, by the government. So this is like around 2008, 2009. And I remember uh, distinctly, uh, we were on the phone and, and we, we learned before the rest of the world learned that Lehman Brothers is going to fail and go bankrupt. And, and I had some people that had connections and tie-ins to Lehman. And essentially, you know, in, in a second, uh, the family fortune all the money that had been made in finance evaporated. And I remember I didn't really like finance at that point in time, but you were getting paid a lot of money. And it, it became clear to me that if I had made a lot of money in this career, yet hated what I did for 20 years, and then all of a sudden that fortune evaporated, how disappointing that would be uh, to work for something that could vanish in a second. So that was one key point where I learned uh, time to, kind of think about the world differently. And the, the other key point actually is I thought I was getting promoted uh, when I was there because I had survived, you know, five rounds of layoffs and I got called up to HR. I was like, oh, finally, you know, they're recognizing me. Uh, I was all happy. I even dropped my dry cleaning off that morning and I actually ended up getting uh, let go. And it was a, it was a really kind of think about a roller coaster, emotional ride. And it, what it told me was, no matter how safe you feel in these big companies, actually the irony is uh, the less safe you are because you can't really control your destiny. So that led me to say, well, what do I want to do next? I know I want to go start a company. I'd always been entrepreneurial. Um, at that point in time, there were no technology companies really hiring. This was pre-WeWork. Uh, tech in New York wasn't really a thing yet. Uh, so I applied to finance jobs. I also applied to tech jobs. Uh, one of the tech jobs I applied to uh, was a company called Live Person, and I actually applied as a developer because that was the only role that I saw posted, and I don't know how to code. So I ended up getting a an interview with the head of product there, and we hit it off, and then he said, okay, well, I'm going to send you the coding test now. So I did the coding test, and you can only imagine how poorly I did on it. And they said, let's keep in touch. Uh, you seem like a bright person, but clearly you don't know how to code. 
ended up getting a job at a real estate fund. And six months later, the head of product from my person reached out with this chief of staff role. Very cool. So the alternative scenario from Credit Suisse with very long hours, culture was not ideal to the alternative at live person. I mean, I think that was a key breaking point where you learned about the importance of culture. So what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So part of it was uh, to the credit of the founder CEO, Rob, who's still a mentor today. I sat across the table from him when I was interviewing. And at that point I was 25 and he said, you know, I think this company can grow a hundred percent year over year. We have a big enough market uh, and there's enough opportunity to help solve customer problems. There's some, uh, there's different ways we can do it. One is we can evolve the company from a single product chat company to a multi-engagement platform. So rather than firing off a chat, we can fire off a marketing offer to a visitor on a website. The other way is we can change the culture. And this is a company that had been around at that point in time for 15 years, was a public company, had two main offices or two big hubs, one in the US, the other in Israel, with which had pretty distinct cultures in and of themselves outside of work culture. And so that really got me to say, wow, this is someone who's just as successful as the people I work for in finance, yet actually is telling me that he wants to invest in changing the culture and transforming the culture because of the impact that it can have. So I ended up uh, getting a gig to work for him directly as his chief of staff to help enable some of that change. And it was the first time where I got to see what it means uh, when you when someone really cares about the culture at the top and and what it looks like to actually invest in the changing of it. So fast forward to seven rooms. How did the idea come to fruition? Like how did you meet your co-founders? What's the background story of the company? So the background story started when I was working in finance and going back to those really long working weeks. Uh, we never knew when we were going to have off for the weekend. It was only when our our managing director, our boss, you know, come come over around seven o'clock or eight o'clock and say, "Hey, you have off for the weekend. You don't have to work." And it was almost like getting a snow day in school. Like, oh, great, amazing! This is the best weekend ever. And at that point, you'd want to go to a restaurant that you had read about. And I always found myself in this, you know, kind of uh, no man's land where I didn't book a reservation in advance because I didn't know I was going to have off. And I didn't know someone at that restaurant to be able to call to get get in last minute. And so I was always stuck in this place where I couldn't go to the places I had read about, even though this was my one free weekend over the past few months. And so it started first as a consumer problem of how do you solve that problem for someone that can't go 20 times to build the relationship? Uh, We ended up, we being my two co-founders, one of them worked at Credit Suisse with me. And then the other one I had grown up with in Texas. So they were the, we were the first three to start the business and fast forward 11 years later, we're still working together in the business today. I feel very fortunate to have them as co-founders. And what we ended up doing is uh, we launched the product for consumers. It failed miserably. Uh, we learned lots of hard lessons and it actually led us to the bigger problem that we're solving today with Seven Rooms, which is when you look at the systems that hospitality operators are using, take restaurants as an example, there was one big thing missing. And that one big thing missing was guest data. And we're like, wait a second. So the industry that cares all about making people feel special, understanding the little things, when Keith walks in, how are they able to know what you care about? 
when the very ingredient you need to do it is not available in the systems they're using to run their business. So that was the seed of the idea behind Seven Rooms. And it was because of a failed startup, quite frankly, of how we kind of stumbled upon this bigger problem. I'm sure it's like one of those aha moments where you're just like, seriously, that like, this is all based on like memory, like just relationships and memory of so-and-so loves this table. They love this bottle of wine or like, like just shocking where you see an industry where the value of that customer is so high. The relationship value is so high yet there's nothing behind the scenes to really empower it and make it even greater. Um, so, so, so how did, how did you end up getting that going? Cause there was a point where the business almost kind of, I mean, you talked about, Hey, it was a failed idea, but then there was an opportunity that helped jumpstart that side of the business. Yeah. So, you know, because of the failed first startup uh, where we did all the classic first time founder mistakes, you know, we overbuilt, we didn't talk to enough potential customers. We fell in love with the solution, but not the problem. Uh, We thought we were smarter than the users what made sense on the whiteboard, we thought made a lot of sense. So we ended up going with those things. Uh, The second go around, uh, what we ended up doing because of the first failure was to spend a lot of time with customers to live the problem and then prioritize the problem. And then most importantly, we talk about this a lot internally, which is falling in love with the problem, not the solution. And so it led us to be much more open and flexible about ways to solve for something And then it led us to have a much deeper, more intimate understanding of the problem. And so what we ended up doing more practically, we talked to enough of these operators and we then ended up stack ranking all the things we had heard and actually all the things we had experienced because we ended up working at some of these places just to get our hands dirty to see what it really was like. And we got enough consistency where we could say, all right, These are the top three problems that we're seeing across the board. V1 of the product is only going to solve these three problems and nothing else. I don't care what we thought was cool. I don't care what our friend thought was cool. We're only going to do these three things because we can validate that those are the things that are meaningful. So we took a very practical approach to it. Um, And then when we got started, it was, I'm not going to say it was easy. Uh, but we had a high degree of confidence of what we were solving for because we had to relive those problems, talk to them with the operators, talk to enough operators to know that that was a big enough problem to solve that we felt, uh, we felt good about whatever the V1 was going to be. Well, I think what's really important to note in uh, the story you were just sharing is you actually were working in the job. So it's not like you were just like coming at it and interviewing potential customers and understanding their pay points, you experience the pain, which I think that's, you know, when you look at investors or entrepreneurs that are wildly successful and investors that like to invest in entrepreneurs that are uniquely qualified to solve that problem, it's usually because they have a certain level of domain experience and they've felt that pain and they know how to address it from a different angle. So I think that's really important what you and your co-founders did. Um, so what were the pain points you were initially solving? So like, what was that, you know, top three things? And that, again, focus is so key as well. Yeah. So uh, one of the things we thought about was they were piecing together data from many different sources on customers. And a lot of it was manual, manually put together. And a lot of it was um, done time and time again because of the way their system was set up. So if if I was trying to understand Keith is the friend of the owner, 
in the notes when you book your reservation, I would say Keith is the friend of the owner, but I would have had to know that um, and I would have to add that in every single time. So one of the things we did, as simple as it sounds, is we just created a centralized CRM system or guest profile that we would pop up whenever you would want to make a reservation. So we would push it proactively to the user when they were booking, when they typed in your phone number or your name to say, wait a second, there's a Keith that exists already. Here's all the other information that you and your team have built up over time and entered. Uh, so let's do that. Let's build it. And then let's make it available ever. That was one. Uh, a second thing was this idea of, well, what are the pieces of information that actually matter to this restaurant or to this operator? What would be good for them to know and why? Okay. What are the sources of data that where that exists? And then how do we connect it through technology? So an example of this is even today, if you ask a restaurant operator and there are 15 million of them on the planet, who are your top 10, your top 25, your top 50 customers? 14 million of the operators today in 2022 cannot answer that question. Wow. Mind-blowing. So one way to answer that question is to connect the, the guest profile to the point of sale system or the cash register so you can tie together transactions, spend information to a person. Why that had been never, never been done before? lots of reasons. So we said, well, let's do that. That makes a lot of sense because they should know these things so that when someone calls over the phone, someone walks into the restaurant, if it's my first day working the host stand, I know that Keith is a top customer of ours. Um, I want to make sure that you get the type of experience that's going to keep you coming back. Uh, so those were some of the early day things that we learned and that we saw. And uh, it's evolved over time, but we always take that same approach to everything we build, which is let's understand the problem set. Let's not fall in love with the solution. Let's fall in love with the problem. And then let's come up with ways that we can make this exponentially easier and have exponential impact for the user and for the customer in this case. Well, let's talk about where seven rooms is today. So, um, where is the platform, you know, is there, uh, a you know, the, the different types of customers you're servicing maybe versus the earlier days. Um, you know, you've raised capital through multiple rounds. So where's where, where are things today? Yeah, you know, one kind of bite-sized way to understand what we do uh, is this idea of, so while it started and while we were born as a CRM system or guest data system for restaurants or for operator, for the hospitality industry, uh, we started thinking about the problem differently in the sense of uh, we have this framing of how do you move from systems of record to systems of engagement to systems of intelligence? And in doing so, how do you help the restaurant or the hospitality operator build a direct relationship and personalized relationship with the guests throughout the guest journey? So before, during, and after. And so uh, what that means more practically is we first started as a CRM system, but that's just a system of record. You know, it doesn't do that much. So we needed to bring that data to life by wrapping around operational tools so that when Keith walks in, I know that you have a reservation. I know that you're friends with the owner. I know that you've been doing delivery and pickup. Uh, so we can really make that experience special side by side with the operational system. And then uh, when you leave, all that data that we gathered, we're able to market to you 
directly in a way that looks like it's coming from a human being. So you might get a, a note from the manager, even though that's actually being sent by the seven room system. If you haven't been back in 30 days, we'll invite you to come back, but we'll leverage the fact that you ordered the tzatziki all the time and we'll say, have a complimentary tzatziki on us. Or if you don't want to come in, here's a link to order delivery directly from us, commission-free, and we'll throw in a complimentary tzatziki for you. So uh, we find ourselves in a position now where we can help the restaurant become the best version of themselves, even without the expertise or the time needed and do many of the things other industries have been doing for quite some time. So we really think about ourselves now as infrastructure like Shopify, where Shopify is helping retailers sell online, offline, helping them understand inventory, pricing, customers. Uh, we see ourselves as an all-in-one system that's helping restaurants uh, have a platform to really run a better profitable business that results in, in unique personalized guest experiences throughout the guest journey. And that's so powerful, that personalization experience, whether if it's in person when you arrive and they just greet you with that different type of welcome, or like you said, in any of the marketing related materials where you feel like that's, it's not spam. It's just like, it's, it's, it's geared towards you and the things that you care about and you like, and it's going to obviously get me to uh, hopefully eat there again and in and, and order. So it's, and that's a big part of what you guys do and, and why your platform is so valuable. It's such an emphasis on ROI. Absolutely. You know, one of the challenges that you know, if we take, go back to that problem that we were talking about, which is if you ask the restaurants uh, who their top customers are, they can't answer that because they've never had the data. If you take it out the next two levels, if you say, well, what's the lifetime value? What's the cost of acquisition for a customer? Most restaurants have no idea what that means, let alone how to calculate it, let alone how to drive it. And in an industry that has razor thin margins, the idea that they don't have any control or idea of profitability is troubling. And then if you take it out to the very last level, you know, how do you market to your guests to get them to come back? You know, one thing I always talk about with people is what's the last great piece of restaurant marketing you remember receiving? Crickets usually. And it's interesting because you take an industry where there's organic and almost inherent loyalty and retention built in because we as consumers, if you order from a restaurant you like, there's a good chance you'll order again. If you go to a restaurant you like, there's a good chance you'll go to that restaurant again. Uh, so how do we actually enable this industry that already has these good flywheels turned on to do even more of that? And so the last part of that is the marketing piece, which drives the ROI, drives repeat visits and repeat orders. So we're able to demonstrate to the restaurant that for every dollar they give us, we can generate upwards of five to six to seven or eight dollars in return. Uh, so we're fully ROI. We we fully pay for ourselves, and that's where that market opportunity is really exciting because the, you're the oxygen, right? Like you're not just some a nice to have. You're a must have that's driving ROI and retention and growth for these restaurant uh, restaurants. So um, now building a startup is hard. Building a startup in an industry like you know restaurants and hospitality is very difficult. You had to go through the pandemic, and restaurants just shut down. So uh, I know you had, and to top it off, I think you were fundraising during that period of time. So talk about. I, I mean, that's such a unique moment in our history of our world. Talk about 
running a company that's focused on what you guys do during that stretch when you're raising capital? Yeah, it was uh, a learning experience of all learning experiences. You know, for sure, it was uh, really, really challenging and really, really hard. Uh, it's definitely the hardest challenge that that I've seen uh, at the company. And there was no playbook to to deal with it. Right. No one had been, oh, the global pandemic. Oh, this is what you do. This is the, this is the playbook. Yeah, there's no playbook for the global pandemic. And out of all of the industries that got hit really hard, uh, for sure, you know, I think travel and live entertainment were top of the heap in terms of who got hit the hardest. And I think the restaurant industry was a close third, if not second, to those two industries. So it hit us, uh, uh, hit us over the head in terms of what to do. And uh, there were definitely some dark days in the, the very early days around, uh, around how to operate, how to think about it. Uh, one thing that, that was helpful, uh, I, I did talk to my old mentor about what to do. Uh, so he gave me some really relevant advice. And I think it's advice that is true for uh, companies now, especially that are, are having to think about profitability uh, on a go forward. We had to figure that out two years ago. So a lot of what companies are thinking about now, uh, we went through two years ago. And you know, I think it's about protecting your customers and staying close to them. I think it's about protecting your team uh, and staying close to them. And then it's about uh, protecting the balance sheet of the company and making sure that you have enough capital to get through it. And then the last thing that I would say that we learned was this idea of be real and be human as much as you can. I think my I, I messed that up where my default mode was to go into rah-rah, we're going to get through this. And in some in some cases, I think it felt like I was out of touch with the reality about how hard it was, all the things people were really going through. Uh, so looking back, I think if you can do those three things and then also make sure you maintain your humanness and keep your feet on the ground in terms of uh, this is tough, this is terrible that we're going through this and it's really hard as opposed to the other side, which is keep working harder, we're gonna make our we're gonna make uh, we're gonna make it through. Uh, just making sure that the messaging is is tied to what the team is actually feeling at that moment. But it was hard. it was it was really, really hard. It's it's interesting because it helped you. I mean, no, I wouldn't wish that scenario on any business. Yet it made you stronger in in the end. Where, you know, right now, if you look at the news, it's all gloom and doom of like recessions and uh, companies laying people off. Um, so it's it's you know the companies that built a solid foundation focused on revenue profitability so that they can get through different market, like there's always going to be market adjustments, different periods of time through our history. So you just got to be prepared for that. And I remember in, you know, a past interview that, you know, the quote was the number one job of a CEO is to make sure the company doesn't run out of money. Yeah. It's about money. Yeah. You can't make payroll. That's so. right. That's right. There's no company to be had if you don't have the money to make it through. 
But the other thing outside of the, uh, you know, being respectful of your employees and keeping the business humming is also being respectful of what your customers are going through and having that flexibility. So I think in another podcast, I, I learned, you know, you were very flexible working with your customers. They were going through a ridiculously hard time. The business was decimated, or then it started to pick up at a fraction of what their, you know, overall tables could see. So how did you think about that? Yeah, one of the things that makes it easier but harder uh, in the height of everything, this is, you know, we'll call it May of 2020. We didn't know when the pandemic was going to be over. There was no talk of a vaccine at that point in time. There was no end in sight, really. And there were a lot of restrictions on restaurants all throughout the world where uh, people remember uh, restaurants had to close down. They were only allowed to do delivery and pick up in some cases. And because of how impacted they were, it became a question of, should we charge them for the system if they're not using it because the restaurant is shut down? And what makes that decision harder, of course, is we're managing cash as well. And every dollar we get into the company means a dollar we could put out to our employees as a simple example. So without having any idea of when the recession, when the uh, when the pandemic would be over, uh, we had to decide how we were going to make decisions. And we thought about how do we make principle-based decisions? Because in reality, that's all you can make if you don't know what the timeframe or duration is. And so we said, well, we want to be a long-standing company with a reputation that is here to serve the industry. What's the principle decision in terms of whether we should waive license fees or not? And the principal decision is to waive license fees so you can support our customers. So we ended up waiving tens of millions of dollars of fees that, quite frankly, would have gone back to the company to support payroll and other things. Uh, and so it was a really hard decision. Uh, and to make it a little bit easier, you know, the executive team did a great job. Uh, we ended up cutting our own salaries. The founders cut our salaries to zero, really to to paint the picture of we're going to do as much as we can, both for our customers and for our employees. It just builds loyalty for those customers and uh, those relationships are so key. All right, let's fast forward to the company today. Like how many employees do you have? What are the plans in terms of growth as it relates to hiring? Yeah, we're back on the growth track with the idea of we want to have economic growth. You know, we've never been a company that's been a growth at all costs company. It's always been measured. It's always been rooted in fundamentals. So uh, that said, we also play to the market that we're in, and in particular, the buyer. What we're finding is restaurants are uh, actively buying technology that is beneficial to their operations, is going to drive revenue for them, is going to drive customer experience for them. And we're finding despite some of the looming economic conditions, they are still very active buyers. And that's true across the world. We have customers in uh, in US, in Europe, in Middle East, in Asia Pacific. And so the company is in growth mode. Uh, we are now 220 people. We've added about 100 people into the company in the past 12 months uh, with a plan to get to closer to 400 people by the end of next year. So we are in active recruiting mode. I think a lot of companies are uh, are turning down their hiring plans and being more conservative. Uh, I wouldn't say that we're not being conservative. I would just say that we're, we're basing our growth rooted in 
economics and payback, knowing that uh, we can return dollars on the investment into people. Uh, and so growing the team at this point and, and actively uh, going after uh, going after it so that we can help become help restaurants all throughout the world. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like you, you've been building a fiscally responsible company. It's, it's not like, oh, there's a looming recession potentially happening. We need to cut costs and start acting responsible. You know, those companies got ahead of their skis. They raised these growth rounds that just weren't sustainable to continue to grow at all costs, like you highlighted before. You built a company that has been built on its own merit, ROI for customers. It's oxygen for companies, for restaurants and um, you know, hotelers. So you built a foundation that allows it to get through you know, different periods of time and continue to grow. So um, I was having this conversation with someone in the industry yesterday where it's like, oh, what's going on? There's all this gloom and doom. And I'm like, the companies that build a foundation are going to be just fine. They're going to continue to hire. The good news for people that are getting laid off is that right now this could change. There is a surplus of jobs versus the amount of people getting laid off. There's still that supply and demand problem. Um, again, two months from now, I could be eating my words, but, um, but we'll see. So how are you and the leadership team at Seven Rooms making you know, the company really an outstanding place to work? Because that's hard to do. Yeah, it really is. It's something that you know takes a lot of focus and intentionality. And you know, hats off to the leadership team at Seven Rooms for uh, really building the type of culture and leading the way in the culture. Uh, one of the things that is really prevalent is it doesn't matter what you want the culture to be. Uh, it's about the actions of how your team is is interacting and the things that they're doing. And in particular, it's about 10 to 100x more when it comes to a leader at the company. And so we're very fortunate to have a, le a leadership team that really embodies uh, all of the best of what we want Seven Rooms to be known for, all of the best of what we want the culture to be that's really leading by example. And I think it's one of the areas where the company has really matured. Uh, we've brought on leaders from phenomenal places uh, HubSpot, as a good example, uh, both our CFO and our head of product came from there. Uh, they're, they're, you know, aside from Netflix, they're known as one of the companies that had an amazing culture. And so uh, we feel very fortunate that not only do we want to have the culture uh, be the best in the world, we also have leaders that are living it every single day that have seen what great looks like elsewhere and are able to bring it here. So you need this combination of both the intentionality of the organization, as well as the intentionality of the leadership that is actually living up to those values every single day and building that culture, because that has a lot of uh, exponential effects when it comes to getting to be that company that you want it to be. So I'm always fascinated by company names. So how'd you come up with the name Seven Rooms? I love this question and I wish I got it more often. And it really speaks to what we wanted to be uh, when we started the company and what we wanted to be known for. So when we started, it was about helping businesses understand people. And we said, you know, most technology at this point in time is really transactional in nature. Everyone's a number, everyone's a sale. Who you are doesn't really matter. We said, well, in certain industries, who you are and the relationship you have with that person does matter. 
restaurants, hospitality, that's a good example of they want to know everything about you. So we wanted to build technology that was about businesses building relationships with people. And we, we of course, did the, the exercise that every startup does is you write all the names on the whiteboard. Uh, we had a lot of corny names. In fact, Ali, one of our co-founders said, well, if we choose that one, I'm going to quit right now. So <laughs> not doing that one. But, we're like, but the domain's available and it's cheap. And so uh, we did more research and we ended up stumbling across this theory by Graydon Carter, who used to be the Vanity Fair editor, used to run restaurants in New York. And it's called the Seven Rooms Theory. And it says, in New York, there are seven interconnected rooms, each one more exclusive than the one before it. So just when you think you're at the top spot or the best place, there's always another room that you don't have access to or you haven't discovered yet. And that hit the nail on the head for us. You know, the seventh room is not the most exclusive place. It's really the place you feel most at home. That might be different for everyone. It might be different based on the, the time of year or the day. And so we said, that's it. That's what we want to create. We want to create the seventh room experience. We want to help businesses make their guests feel at home. That is such a cool story. And it's great to hear that that's kind of ties into the meaning behind the name. So the, the restaurant industry is massive. Uh, hospitality is massive. Yet it can be a challenging industry to break into if you're a tech company. So um Yet I look at a company like Toast, right? There was point of sale systems. It's not like they invented point of sale, but now every restaurant you go into, they're using Toast and they're, you know, handhelds and all. So like, like they created a better way of doing the point of sale. So what areas in the industry are still like ripe for disruption that haven't really been solved yet? Almost every area, when we look at it, you know, this is an industry that has been held back uh, with technology there's been a lot of incumbents that haven't really innovated. I think point of sale is a good example where Toast came in uh, with a much better model and much better technology uh, where it was, the old model was an on-premise model. You pay a lot for the hardware upfront. You have a services contract. When something breaks, you call in the person to come in, but you hate it, they hate you. It's a terrible experience. It's like cable-like experience. And they came in with this idea of much lower cost upfront, cloud-based technology. And they innovated actually on the business model where they made a lot of their money off the credit card transactions as opposed to this big on-prem model. So that's one example. Uh, I think what is interesting is because of the size of the industry and because of the fact that so many consumers go eat out, order delivery, order pickup, and the consumer is always changing, there's so many opportunities to serve this industry, and it is a big enough industry to go after and just focus on it. Uh, you know, for any startup or entrepreneurs, it will definitely check the box in terms of SAM or TAM or whatever you want to use for it. So I think we're still very early innings in what this industry can be because we haven't seen as much innovation as we should have the past 20 years. And you're now starting to see some innovation happened, but I think it's still early days in terms of what can be done for this industry. So what have been some of the biggest lessons learned while, while building, building the company? Some of the old adages that you hear time and time again, uh, you know, it's all about people. You know, if you get the best people in, you don't, you, you work less hard and you get a much better impact. I think for anyone uh, that knows that that's true, making sure that you tune your schedule to really account for it. So 
you know, that means that meant for me, um, in many cases, when we're recruiting some specific roles, uh, I'll block out half of my week to make sure I'm spending my week on recruiting. Uh, so really being intentional about finding the, the best people possible, uh, and really like, you know, beg, beg and plead and go above and beyond to get that person in. Because if you can get that person in, they're going to pay for themselves and then some, and it's going to be the difference between success and failure. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is it just takes a lot of time. Uh, we read about these startups that feel like overnight successes. Uh, it's more often the case that it took many, many years to get to the point. And so just understanding and being patient with the idea that it's going to take a lot of time to get to where you want to get to. But if you just keep working at it and keep your head down and keep moving forward one step at a time, you're going to get to where you want to get to. And then the last one is, you know, uh, while I'm not saying have a boundless sense of optimism and I'm not saying, uh, you know, don't understand reality, I think uh, if you keep yourself in the game long enough, you're going to get the lucky bounces just by nature of the beast and just by the nature of statistics so uh, for any startup that has some traction is kind of really thinking about how they're going to get through this period uh, for someone that lived through it the past couple of years without knowing when the pandemic was going to be over, uh, position yourself in the best way possible to make it through, because I think there's going to be more opportunities for the ones that can make it through than less, and you're going to be much stronger for it once you get through it. So uh, keep your optimism. Uh, you're going to get the lucky bounces uh, and make the decisions now that you think will bear fruit. Uh, make them sooner rather than later. I want advice on building a global company because Seven Rooms has you know global operations and customers you know all over. So how, what, what what have you or what advice would you share on on building that type of footprint? Yeah, more more practically because I think there's some sexiness in the idea of being in many different markets and being in many different places. And I would say that in the early days, uh, focus is really important. It's better to win in a select few markets than be okay in, in 10X more. The other thing is if you do wanna go global or you do wanna penetrate more markets than just the ones that you have enough sales force for, is to really think about partnerships and distribution and so find ways that you can distribute your product that's not reliant upon your sales force. So whether that's a bigger technology company, whether that's some integration partner where you can have some mutual benefit to work together, that I think is the best way to expand economically. Uh, otherwise, when you're very early and you're counting on your sales team uh, to go sell into all of these different markets all at the same time, it's almost too much complexity and you'll spread yourself too thin. So early days, I would say focus on select markets. And if you do want to expand, find partnerships or channels where you can distribute the product through them as opposed to having to use your own workforce. Got it. No, that's great advice. All right. Three apps you can't live without. Mm. Uh, as of recently, uh, so Spotify for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Uber has been a big one, Uber or Lyft. So both of those uh, always are great and it's good to see those come back alive. I think it kind of adds to the ecosystem of a lot of different cities. Uh, and then the third one, you know, maybe Netflix right now, 
you know, if I had to choose a, a third or YouTube TV, I think has done a really good job of their content and their programming. Uh, so those are the ones that come to mind. How about a podcast or a book recommendation? So obviously venture fizz, of course. <laughs> of uh, course. Thank you. Of course. And then the other one that I've been listening to a lot uh, is the name is, uh, I don't know if I, I love the name, but the content is really great. It's called Invest Like the Best. Mm, and okay. we get a variety of different people from different fields to talk about uh, their business or talk about what they're doing. So that's one of the ones that I've tuned into a lot recently. Cool. I'll check that out. I haven't heard of that one yet. Always looking for new content like that. Outside of work, what do you like to do for fun? So love to hang out with the dog and uh, love to go check out new restaurants with my fiance. Uh, we have gone on a basically a food tour the past couple of years since uh, you know restaurants have really come back alive in New York. So every weekend we find ourselves exploring some new restaurant, new part of town. Uh, that would be the, the main couple of things I find myself doing these days. That's awesome. Well, Joel, thanks so much for taking this time to walk us through your background story, all the great work that's happening at Seven Rooms, and obviously all the great stories and advice. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.